Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 34. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Symphony No. 4 in B-flat major, Opus 60, completed like the Razumovsky string quartets in 1806, a little before the fourth piano concerto we looked at in episode 32. For a very long time, Beethoven's even-numbered symphonies have been considered by large numbers of listeners as lighter and less substantial than the odd-numbered symphonies. Not really factoring in symphonies 1 and 2, since they, despite their worthiness, tend almost to be considered starter symphonies. It's easy to see why this distinction between the even and odd symphonies has been made, since the odd side includes some clearly groundbreaking and monumental works, beginning with the Eroica Symphony. But of course, the problem with this sort of differentiation is that listeners will be predisposed to take symphonies 4 and 8 a little less seriously. I'm leaving number 6, the Pastoral Symphony, out of the equation because it so clearly represents a special case. Why the dramatic difference in approach between the two symphonies, the Eroica and the Fourth, in such a relatively short period of time? Beethoven had apparently begun sketches for his Fifth Symphony about the same time he was completing the Eroica, but he had put that project aside for the time being, perhaps because a new symphony had been commissioned by a third party, and he wanted a different sort of work available to fulfill that commission. And, as I've suggested before, no composer really wants to compose the same work again and again, certainly not the same or too similar a work within the same genre, and that would be especially true for Beethoven, with his unique sort of artistic restlessness. So, even though this creative period in Beethoven's life is notably marked by heroic and or dramatic gestures of various sorts, it's clear that he had by no means lost interest in more understated or serene pleasures, and he probably looked forward with great pleasure to composing a new work in which he might invest the wit and humor, which was also an important part of his creative personality at this point. But if Symphony No. 4 has historically been thought of as relatively lightweight, what are we to think of the fairly lengthy, slow introduction in B-flat minor? Does it suggest foreboding? Is there a hint of menace to it? Let's take a closer look. It's certainly not unusual to encounter a slow introduction to a faster symphonic movement, especially the first movement. In this case, the beginning tempo marking is adagio, later giving way to allegro vivace when the exposition section proper begins. Sometimes the opening introductions are a bit diffuse, introducing a series of thematic ideas that don't seem to have much to do with each other. But not here. This introduction is highly integrated from a motivic point of view. It's dominated by two motives, which we'll call simply Introduction 1 and Introduction 2. Introduction 1 consists of a series of descending broken thirds, Here's a simplified example. (music) 
Motive two is based on an initial ascending, then descending arpeggio figure that is built around a dominant minor ninth chord, although it's missing the third of that chord. We hear it first on F, since that would be the dominant note in the key of B-flat minor. The fact that each note is short, an eighth note followed by an eighth rest, is an important part of its identity, as we'll see. Usually the pattern is heard in a single instrument, for example first violins, but it's occasionally divided up between two. Here's a recording of the first part of the introduction in which those two motives are prominently featured. Sometimes the first motive, the broken thirds motive, is heard along with the second motive in a slightly different form. My excerpt extended only through the 18th measure, at the first hint of modulation away from B-flat minor. The young Karl Maria von Weber, a late and never completely wholehearted supporter of Beethoven, complained about this introduction that too few notes were dragged out over too long a time and nothing much happened. Not quite fair, perhaps, but you can see what may have prompted the comment. Eventually, we leave B-flat minor behind. The pattern is moved up half a step, and we seem to be heading toward B minor, and then a little later to C major. There are some clever harmonic devices here, for example, enharmonic reinterpretations of some notes. For example, G-flat is reinterpreted as F-sharp, and also a deceptive cadence along the way. As we draw closer to the conclusion of the introduction, Beethoven touches briefly on other tonal areas by way of a couple of secondary dominant chords. In other words, a certain new chord is made temporarily to sound like the tonic chord because it's prefaced by its dominant chord, something I've also referred to as the tonicizing process. The effect is usually short-lived and really just gives a sense of motion and maybe a little harmonic instability. 
that sense of temporary harmonic instability in an introduction is sometimes very useful because it sets up a major climax and a sense of really having arrived when we spring into the exposition proper and we hear the first theme because it then seems not just stable but positively exhilarating by comparison. Here's the last part of the slow introduction, eventually crescendoing and leading into the first subject via a pair of upbeat motives, quick stepwise runs up the scale by violins one and two, heading for the dominant note and a fortissimo timpani roll. In my excerpt, you also heard the first couple of bars of the first subject, Fortissimo, in the new Allegro Vivace tempo. Initially, the rapid ascending scale runs, the upbeat or pickup motives, which exist in different versions, are continued as Beethoven repeats the dominant chord in B-flat major again and again, building up increasingly heightened levels of expectation before we arrive at the tonic chord. Instantly, we're presented with a quieter, new melodic idea, but it is not a completely new idea. It initially unfolds in a descending pattern of eighth notes followed by eighth rests, a pattern which harkens back to the introduction. It's not exactly the same, of course, but broken third patterns and chord arpeggiations are again both in evidence. Here are the opening bars of the exposition again you'll hear one largely new idea in the woodwinds a few bars in when the first violins pause their melodic statement and the seconds and violas cease their pulsating eighth note chords beneath it. This new idea is little more than a flowing descending scale line harmonized in first inversion chords by oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. But the line is marked dolce and it's very effective in context. Then the whole 12 bars to that point are repeated again with the descending dolce line slightly reconfigured and bolstered by the lone flute an octave higher along with the string section. It eventually comes to a close with a solid punctuating cadence. Coinciding with that emphatic cadence, we hear the beginning of a new pianissimo section, featuring two very different ideas competing for the listener's attention. Neither are particularly strong thematic ideas, 
One appears in the first violins and consists of repeated alternation between the tonic note and the leading tone, almost like a slow-motion trill that subsequently moves on to different pitches and is eventually shared with the second violins. The other in the bassoons consists of arpeggio patterns in quarter notes, alternately descending and ascending. Beethoven introduces some chromatic chords, including diminished seventh chords at this point, and some sharp dissonances are heard in passing. Because of this, the listener might reasonably hear this passage as undermining the original tonic key, in other words, fulfilling the typical harmonic role of the modulatory transition section. But the fact is that the original tonic note, the B-flat, is never really missing. It's heard constantly as a repeated pedal tone in the low strings and later the timpani beneath the dissonances. And after a few measures, the two main thematic ideas I just alluded to both disappear as we crescendo into fortissimo and the whole section ends with another rousing cadence on B-flat. So you can't really call it a transition section, even though it may feature some of the same attributes. And we're left with saying that this is somehow part two of the first subject, with the assigned task of introducing a little mystery and uncertainty before chiming in with another big cadence that reintroduces the first subject again. And it does reintroduce the first subject again, at least the opening measures. But it would be easy to overlook that recurrence because now, instead of featuring the theme in the upper strings, it's initially rather buried in the lower strings against a very full orchestral texture above it, playing a series of accented whole notes. And it does not continue with the first theme after the first four bars because this time it does become the modulatory transition that will take us to the key of the dominant, F major, after we hear a passage of syncopated chords and a diminuendo down to piano. When we finally arrive at the second subject, the first thematic idea we encounter is a very clever one, three measures long and based initially on a descending broken thirds pattern in eighth notes, leading to an ascending staccato line in quarter notes. We first encountered descending broken thirds in the slow introduction, although the results here are of course quite different because of the change in mode and differences in rhythm, tempo, and instrumentation. The bassoon gets the first chance at this new thematic idea, and then, overlapping the third measure, the oboe chimes in, and then two bars after that, the flute up a fourth. 
This very attractive little phrase is then abandoned in favor of a long, meandering, descending line in the flute, unfolding initially in half notes and later in quarter notes as it passes to the strings. This passage, which tilts us in the direction of D minor, then gives way to something of a transitional passage, a sequentially organized pattern of staccato half notes in the strings that eventually crescendos up to forte and snatches us back from D minor, bringing us in the end back to F major. In the last few bars, it takes on a more distinctive melodic character with a stronger rhythmic profile as well, summoning up for a few measures the heroic style associated with Symphony Number no. 3. I mentioned before the fact that as we move further into the 19th century and through Beethoven's middle period, the relatively clear-cut formal outlines of some of his earlier works tend to blur a bit, and that's the case here. What comes after the brief but rather heroic-sounding passage you just heard is another very quiet, soft, and subtle theme presented initially in an eight-measure passage by the solo clarinet and imitated a measure later by bassoon. So how would we label it? Is it the second subject, part two? It remains in F major, but it doesn't seem to have much to do with what comes immediately before it. Is it then a closing section? It doesn't really fit the profile at first, although as the idea is picked up and reinforced by the rest of the orchestra, it does take on more of the boisterous quality we might associate with a closing section, especially after the theme itself dissipates. We're not quite at the end of the exposition at this point, and there is one more section to consider. It arrives with another emphatic cadence in F major and a significant reduction in texture and carries us through to the end. And it is somewhat familiar, employing many of the same across-the-bar syncopations that first appeared in the modulatory transition, although the shape of the melodic line is more dynamic here. So, to acknowledge its reduction in texture, partial newness, and dynamic quality, we'll call it the Codetta. The development section begins by quoting motives from the first subject in F major at some length. 
but soon we hear signs of modulation to a new key, as the upbeat figure to the first subject, those ascending four sixteenth notes, begin to take on a life of their own, and we head toward D major. Beethoven's reliance on the opening motives of the first theme soon begins to become just a little tedious when he adds into the mix a lovely little four-bar lyrical countermelody, which begins with a sustained note and then rises gradually up a fifth. We hear it first in the first violins, and then shortly thereafter in the clarinets, and then flute up an octave. In fact, we hear it a number of times, sometimes in a slightly varied version, as we make our way to the key of E-flat major. Here is the first part of the development section, ending with a crescendo up to a cadence on E-flat major, and including the lyrical countermelody I just referred to. After that point, the tension level remains reasonably high as the first subject motives continue to be exploited, along with the upbeat motives from the introduction. But soon the texture thins and the dynamic level softens to pianissimo. At that point, we encounter a rather mysterious passage in which the timpani is given an unusual solo opportunity, a pianissimo role. Then, in another surprising move, we hear the descending motive that first appeared in measures 5 through 8 of the first subject. We've heard Beethoven exploit motives from the opening four bars of that theme again and again in the development section. But this is the first time he's returned to the contrasting idea presented in the second half of the first theme. Here is the very quiet, more mysterious passage with the timpani roll, after which the descending lyrical line from the second half of the first subject makes an appearance, moving from the violins down to the cellos, still pianissimo. Eventually, the upbeat motives from the introduction start to reappear in a reduced texture in which the timpani continues to figure prominently. In fact, it continues its role on the note of B-flat for over 20 measures. But now that the introductory motives have begun to take on a more significant role and the dynamic level begins to rise, it's not difficult to guess that the recapitulation is right around the corner, although my excerpt concludes before the big moment arrives.
The recapitulation brings back the main themes in the expected keys and in good order. And the coda is surprisingly compact as it exposes the main ideas a final time and drives forcefully to the final cadence. Given the rather sullen adagio introduction for this movement, I suppose it might be considered surprising that the recapitulation and coda leave us with such a buoyant feeling. Has the introduction been completely forgotten, dismissed as if it had never taken place? Well, not exactly. Although it may be difficult to remember the details after a single hearing, the fact is that the adagio introduction actually served as the source for some of the motives in the first subject and to a lesser extent in the second, which, when transformed by mode and tempo, among other things, played an important part in both the exposition and the development section. And, of course, that's a major part of the fun from the composer's point of view, inventing musical materials which, with some modifications, can be used to serve such different ends and project such different moods. The slow movement is a lovely one, unusually straightforward in regard to form and containing some of Beethoven's most gorgeous melodies. Tuffy hears it as a rondo form, but most commentators think of it as a modified sonata form of a type not unusual in slow movements. It's in E-flat major, 3-4 time, marked adagio, and begins rather unusually for a lyrical slow movement with a repeated dotted note rhythm in the second violins that sounds very much like a typical timpani part, going back and forth between tonic and dominant notes. And, in fact, commentators often refer to it as the drum motive. Is this meant to suggest something approaching a military style? The themes we're about to hear after that rhythm is introduced, and which unfold against a slightly gentler variant of that rhythm, certainly don't seem to suggest anything like that, although the trumpets and horns do occasionally seem to evoke the military style in a low-key sort of way as the movement proceeds. Why the contradiction in stylistic terms? Is this in some way the equivalent of the playful contradictions encountered in the first movement, where the somewhat ominous slow movement introduction gives way to the cheerful, almost flippant first subject? Perhaps, but I doubt if Beethoven is trying to be humorous here any more than he was trying to be humorous in the first movement. He did, I think, enjoy the apparent contradiction between the austere, repetitive military rhythms and the elegant lyrical melody above, knowing that the repeated rhythms would make the lyrical melody sing all the more effectively because of that contrast. The lovely first theme is a long-spanned one, marked cantabile, presented first in the first violins with a graceful countermelody in the viola against it. It descends mostly by step down an octave from the upper tonic note with shorter note values as we approach the lower tonic. Then it begins to ascend, also mostly by step, but crescendoing and with an expressive, non-harmonic tone on the downbeat of the fourth measure, and then moving in four chromatic half-steps after that. But after it reaches its melodic goal, it drops a fifth 
and the dynamic level drops with it, back down to piano, as the so-called drum motive reappears, quietly, of course. After a sustained note, the melody then renews its activity. First, the descending leap of a fifth, heard a measure earlier, is echoed, and then the melody starts to ascend once again, this time coming to rest on the dominant note. After another introductory measure featuring the drum motive, now diffused throughout the texture, you heard a bit of it at the end of my excerpt, we then hear the first theme again, this time shared by clarinets and flute with the bassoon and oboes contributing a beguiling countermelody. Here's a little of that second presentation. After a solid cadence on E-flat, we're introduced to a new lyrical melodic idea in the first violins, after a swirling arpeggio upbeat figure. It's only two bars long, beginning on a dominant seventh chord over a tonic pedal, and stylistically created from the same cloth as the first subject. But it is new, as are the swirling arpeggios and on-the-beat accents from the trumpets and off-beat eighth notes from woodwinds and horns that follow it. And, as it turns out, it constitutes the beginning of the modulatory transition, since when it repeats, it does so on a dominant seventh chord on F, which sets up the modulation to the new key of B-flat major, the expected key of the dominant. Here is the first part of that transition. When the second subject arrives, presented first by the clarinet, it's another lovely lyrical melody, even more plaintive than the first because of its hesitations and pedal-based chromatic harmonies. Against it, the lower strings accompany with slowly unfolding portal arpeggios played pizzicato, while the first violins add a repeated sighing motive in slurred sixteenth notes. Mm -hmm. 
The music then cadences solidly on B-flat major, and we encounter the final section of the exposition, one that combines the functions of closing section and codera, although the final bars do take on a unique quality of their own. Here we are met with a return of the opening drum motive in the double basses, while the cellos and later upper strings add in swirling sixteenth note figures similar to those heard first in the transition, and the woodwinds and horns contribute repeated semi-staccato chords and also hint at the opening motive from the transition. But after a few bars, everyone, including the timpani, jumps on the opening dotted rhythm drum motive, now mostly in the service of grandiose arpeggio patterns, which crescendo up to a powerful climax, and we conclude, somewhat surprisingly, back in E-flat major. The development section is absolutely masterful, but I'm only going to play two brief excerpts. It begins in E-flat major with a repeat of the opening drum motive and a new version of the first subject, elegantly and often chromatically embellished by the first violins. It may seem unusual to stay in the original tonic key of E-flat major for so long in the development section, but the passage immediately following the one you just heard takes a very dramatic turn away from E-flat major with a switch to the minor mode and a long, ominous descending line in quarter notes with accented downbeats. This ominous line, beginning on E-flat, ends on a low D-flat, and leads to a lilting little duet between first and second violins, which is anything but ominous, as it floats up and down a dominant seventh chord on D-flat, which will soon deliver us to the key of G-flat. From that point on, the development section does more or less what we expect it to do, by modulating to B-flat minor, while exploiting primarily the opening measures of the first subject. 
but it doesn't modulate far or for very long, because before we know it, we're back in E-flat major as the recapitulation begins. I'm not going to play it, but it's as lovely as the exposition, and even more florid in its decoration, first from the solo flute, and later for the second subject, in E-flat major as well, from the clarinet. And the brief coda does not disappoint. It's wonderfully understated and serene, even though, as you might expect, we hear one more time from the timpani and its favorite motive, just three measures before the movement comes to a close. But we are going to move on now to the third movement. Beethoven had written a number of exuberant scherzos demonstrating a very playful approach to rhythm, but there was nothing quite like this scherzo at the time it was composed. It's in B-flat major, 3-4 time, marked allegro vivace, and begins fortissimo. It features another of those fast tempo leaping up the notes of a tonic triad themes, at least in its initial quite striking opening phrase, which biographer Swafford describes as a two-beat theme kicking against the three-beat meter. As you probably noticed, by the time we get to the third measure of the four-bar phrase, which begins a descending arpeggiation of a dominant seventh chord, we settle in a little more securely into the triple meter. The next phrase represents a shift, the main melodic idea passing from the first violins to clarinets and bassoons, and the dynamic level softening to piano. But the difference is not just a question of a change in orchestration or dynamics. The second phrase ascends, but in a somewhat unexpected pattern. In the first two measures, it ascends by step, starting on the fifth scale degree, an F. But it quickly introduces an accidental, a G-flat, and the next three notes outline a diminished triad that somehow seems out of place and a little puzzling after the exuberant opening phrase. The strings re-enter after two bars, the first violins now returning to the descending arpeggio heard in measure three, but now modified to include the shape of a diminished seventh chord, followed by a further stepwise descent ending on D-flat. I know it's hard to follow a description like this, but the point is that the joyful simplicity of the first four bars has been replaced by a certain degree of uncertainty and tonal ambiguity, starting in measure five. Here's the entire first part of the first section without the repeat. As you heard in the last few measures of the section, that hint of tonal ambiguity is replaced by the return of the original cross-rhythm motive and another confident affirmation of B-flat major, although we end on a dominant chord in that key. As you may remember from other scherzos, these movements are often in a large A-B-A form, the large A being the scherzo section proper and the B section being the trio. In this case, we actually have more of an A-B-A-B-A' prime form, but more about that later. The initial scherzo section is often divided into two parts, as it is here. 
You just heard the first, shorter part that ends on the dominant and is repeated. In this case, the second, longer section starts out with a thematic idea that is clearly derived from the opening four bars of the first section, but now in D-flat major. As the section continues, that same motive is tossed around between various instruments against a slower-moving bass line in bassoons and low strings. It moves for a while to E-flat minor, and then a little later to F minor and C minor, before finally returning to B-flat major and sitting on a dominant seventh chord in that key as we crescendo. Finally, the theme from the first section returns in B-flat major, fortissimo, in a new, somewhat busier version, with the first violins initially up an octave and with its own little codetta, which eventually, after a little deceptive cadence surge, brings the section to a close back in the key of B-flat major. Here is that second, longer section of the scherzo with the return of the original theme after 32 bars. I mentioned earlier the stylistic ambiguity in the scherzo section, from the ebullient cross-rhythm motives of the opening measures to the uncertain and somewhat perplexing chromaticism of the quiet passage that follows. But there is no such emotional ambiguity in the trio section. Marked with a slightly slower tempo indication, it seems warm-hearted and sweetly lyrical almost from beginning to end. It opens with some languid phrases featuring the woodwinds, which are answered by coquettish triadic figures in first violin. Although there is some manipulation of the dynamics, the line crescendoing briefly then falling away, the predictability of the phrasing and the use of trills gives it a slightly antiquated feeling. Even if the string answers, which fill up the space between woodwind phrases, sometimes suggest a more yearning, romantic quality. At the end of my excerpt, you heard Beethoven extend the passage and the dominant chord by handing a variant of the melody to the bassoons, harmonized in thirds against a slightly modified countermelody in flutes and oboes, 
and supported also by a repetition of the dominant note in the horns and the occasional string pizzicato also on the dominant. A few measures later, we encounter a new idea, but it's a modest one, repeating a narrow four-note neighbor tone motive that basically embellishes the seventh of the dominant chord. Beethoven muddies the water ever so slightly by bumping the repeated figure up a step briefly, but soon the main trio theme returns in B-flat major with a fuller texture, still accompanied by the repeated neighbor tone figure in the strings. Here is that new idea, followed by the return of the main trio theme. As you could hear, the passage begins to accumulate some power, but then fades away, so that the return to the scherzo theme can be heard as a dramatic event. After the scherzo returns, no repeats this time, the trio does as well, which was certainly a novel gesture in this period, giving the movement something of a rondo-like quality. This is followed by a return of the scherzo theme for the last time only part one this time, and a slightly modified one at that, and the movement hurries to its final cadence after a very brief coda. The finale is in B-flat major, two-four time marked allegro, ma non troppo, and piano. The dynamic level doesn't remain quiet for very long, however, and jumps around in a way that was very much a part of the joke for Beethoven. The first theme is introduced right away, but in fits and starts. Here's a considerably slowed-down, simplified version of the first measure and a half. There are two simple motives here, and Beethoven will soon exploit each of them separately. The first, motive A, heard on beat one, consists of a series of sixteenth notes, starting on the tonic note, dipping down to the leading tone, and right back to the tonic, and then up a third. The second, motive B, is a simple ascending scale line of four sixteenth notes, starting on the dominant note on the second beat. The first beat of the second measure repeats motive A, now beginning with a grace note up a step. It's motive B, the ascending scale fragment that Beethoven decides to play with first, although he inverts it, sometimes extending it down to reach the lower octave. This new inverted version of motive B is heard three times in the next two measures, in the second violins, violas, and cellos. Motive A is not forgotten, however. It's heard prefaced by a grace note in measure four, along with a triadic pattern in the lower strings, against multi-stopped punctuating forte chords, doubled by the woodwinds and the upper strings. Here's a recording of the first four bars. Thank <laughs> you.
The dynamic level now retreats all the way to pianissimo as Beethoven initiates a passage in thirds between first and second violins based on motive A, paired with another 16th note motive that moves up a third by step and then back down. These two motives, heard alternately and gradually moving up by step, dominate for seven measures. Then a new, more sustained and lyrical motive, motive C, appears in the first violins, starting on the seventh of the dominant seventh chord on F. It descends first by a pair of consecutive thirds and then by step, as the dominant seventh resolves to the tonic chord beneath it. It's the sort of melodic idea that you might expect to be sustained and perhaps repeated or developed, and it is, but ever so briefly. As the tonic chord is reached, the woodwinds take over the melodic reins, beginning with an arpeggiated tonic chord, and then moving to an embellished variant of mode of C. Here's an excerpt beginning with the pianissimo 16th note passage I just referred to, moving on to the introduction of the more lyrical mode of C and its embellished repetition. At the end of my excerpt, you could hear a crescendo into a bustling fortissimo passage. It too draws on motive A and its companion motive, moving in sixteenth notes, but a stronger, triadic-based melodic figure in eighth notes soon emerges, first in violins one and two, and then later in the woodwinds. This is, as you might have guessed, the beginning of the modulatory transition, and we are soon headed toward F major. Upon arrival, we are introduced to a very pleasant second subject, marked dolce, with the first or antecedent phrase of four bars presented in the solo oboe with arpeggio-based accompaniment from the clarinet and sustained chords in the lower strings. The second or consequent phrase is taken by the flute. The entire eight measures are then repeated, beginning in the cellos with a very effective new syncopated countermelody above provided by the violins. After four bars, violins and cellos then switch places. Here is the end of the modulatory transition going into the second subject. Immediately following the second theme, we hear a beguiling little tag in the woodwinds, which, when repeated and syncopated, escorts us into the much noisier closing section, abounding with sforzando accents on the second beat of the measure. But all of a sudden, things quiet again, and another coquettish little syncopated theme is presented, first in the first violins and later in the flute. It's extremely witty in a very Mozart opera buffa-ish sort of way, the tag theme and the coquettish theme, as well as the heavy-handed chords that they play off of. There's even a new little codetta theme tossed back and forth in the final bars, 
It's really just an ornamented descending scale line, and owes quite a bit to the coquettish theme I just referred to. Still, it all sounds new and frolicsome, even though, in fact, quite a bit of the 16th note passage work is drawn from motives we heard in the early measures of the movement. The development section begins as the codetta finishes with a flow of 16th notes based on motive A from the opening measure of the movement and its companion motive introduced in measure 5. We start in F major as we left off, but the 16th note pattern gradually moves up and after just four bars, we find ourselves in A flat major and then a little later in B flat minor. But we don't remain anchored to any tonal center for very long, and when the more lyrical mode of C makes its appearance in the low strings, later moved up to first violins, we've already begun a transition to C minor. Still, mode of A and its companion continue to dominate, even as a new, more sustained, overlapping three-note motive, beginning with an ascending sixth, presented first in the woodwinds, is repeatedly placed against it. This new idea, which you'll hear in just a minute, is reminiscent of the second subject stylistically, but is by no means identical to it. Eventually, the development begins to focus on sharp, on-the-beat sforzando accents, sometimes against syncopated figures in the lower strings. Here's the first part of the development section. Beethoven rather sneaks into the recapitulation with the bassoon first giving us a quiet, premature entrance of the first subject, Mark Dolce, just four bars before the real recapitulation begins, Forte, with violins one and two joining with the viola to double the first theme. What follows is by no means an actual repeat of the exposition. Some of the spinning out of motive A is curtailed, and motive C of the first subject is not prominently displayed. 
The transitions are different, of course, because we don't change keys this time. When the second subject appears, it's in B-flat major as well. But much of the original closing section and codetta remain clearly recognizable, although as we approach the coda, there are some novel touches. At times, motive A is presented in augmentation, that is, the note values are doubled. And at one point, the previously absent motive C is juxtaposed on top of motive A in the strings. And the final measures are charmingly coquettish, stopping and starting to delay the inevitable cadence again and again. Here's our final excerpt, approaching the coda, which begins with another quiet restatement of the opening theme, which crescendos quickly, only to drop down again. And so there we have Beethoven's Fourth Symphony. It's certainly neither heroic nor noble like the Third Symphony, nor does it represent some cosmic grappling with fate, as the Fifth Symphony is so often characterized. It's true that the first movement of the Fourth featured a slow introduction that may have just touched on the ominous, but it quickly became clear that it was an ironic gesture if not an overtly humorous one. For the rest of the symphony piles delight upon delight. Charming lyrical melodies, quirky, vaguely eccentric, coquettish melodies, cleverly syncopated rhythms, and the energy of a Mozartian ensemble finale from one of his opera buffas. It's actually hard to imagine a more entertaining combination. For our next episode, we'll turn to another great work composed around 1806, that amazingly golden early middle period in Beethoven's life, the Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61. <laughs> 